Hey, Scott, it's time for another score show. Really? What kind of themeless, tuneless, empty, boring, lifeless, athematic, amelodic dreck are we listening to this time? This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Listeners, welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where today is the third National Film Score Day. In honor of this auspicious occasion, we're going to try something a little different than we've done before. Instead of talking about scores from specific franchises or award nominations, we have a different idea. Scott, here is my traditional introductory question. What are we doing today? Well, I had the idea that if we're going to do something, And it doesn't have to be anything in particular, because it's not about a particular year, and it's not about a particular movie release, and it's not about a particular franchise. Especially after our most recent Oscar show, I would really just like to do an episode about scores that are good. Could we just do one damn episode about stuff that's just good? (laughs) As I was trying to figure out exactly how we would define this show beyond merely scores that we like for once in our damn lives. I decided that we needed to have some further limitations placed on us. Otherwise, I would just have picked two Star Wars, two Supermans, and Star Trek Into Darkness, and that wouldn't have been any fun for anyone. Plus at least three of those we've already done. Well, that was the first thing that I came up with, is that it should be scores that we've never done on the show before. There's no point in just, like, talking about the Giacchino Spider-Man again, or talking about one of the Star Wars scores again. So it should at the least be new stuff that we haven't covered in the past. And I also decided that it shouldn't be, like, the really super famous scores that everyone knows are great. You know, not Superman, not Indiana Jones, not Braveheart or Titanic or Lord of the Rings... Not one of those really super obvious choices. So these are scores that aren't necessarily at the top of everyone's radar, but scores that are just really good to listen to. And when I started trying to think of examples, 
of just scores that aren't necessarily by the most super famous composers and not the most famous scores. The one that really came to mind first, that really came to define for me exactly what this show should be, is Bill Conti's score to Necessary Roughness. Conti is someone that I always thought was a more famous composer than I think he actually is. He did Rocky, he did The Right Stuff, his North and South miniseries score is just outstanding. He composed the Academy Awards Orchestra for several years. I always imagined him as sort of among the top tier of composers, but my experience, when now that I'm actually like sort of in the score fandom to the extent that I am, is that he's not really considered among that group. And that may help explain why it took so long for this score to be released. They never put out a score CD for the movie when it originally came out, and even with all of the boutique labels going back and releasing anything that Jerry Goldsmith or John Williams ever put their name on, Necessary Roughness never got a CD release until 2014. I remember for a long time, it was one of the only things that was still unreleased that I was really eagerly anticipating. There are, of course, some other reasons why it wasn't released until that late date. Different film studios have had different policies over time about whether they would contract with the boutique score labels. And Paramount Pictures, which made Necessary Roughness for a long, long time, would not open their vaults to any of these labels. That dam was finally broken in 2008 with Paramount by Lucas Kendall of Filmscore Monthly. And if you look at the liner notes for Necessary Roughness, or pretty much any other release that comes out of the Paramount vaults, you'll probably see Lucas Kendall listed as an album producer. So a lot of that depends on who is in charge of the music department at a studio, which producers at which of these labels have a relationship or can foster a relationship with that person, and there's a lot of business stuff that goes on. There are some companies that open their vaults and then close them again. Uh, Sony recently did. And so anything that wasn't already under contract and in progress from Sony ain't happening now. Now, of course, that dam was broken, I said, in 2008, and this score came out in 2014, but there was a great deal of things that people had wanted for a very long time out of the Paramount vault. That being said, however, there were many Bill Conti releases, especially from the Vares Saraband CD Club, for many of his scores that they were able to license during the 2000s. That well had dried up a little bit by 2014, so it was a little unique to see Necessary Roughness finally appear, 
but there are other reasons besides nobody thought of it, nobody liked it, to be fair. Well, I mean, it wouldn't be an unfair thought if nobody thought of it. This is a college football comedy movie starring Robert Loggia and Hector Elizondo and Scott Bakula as the quarterback, and also featuring Kathy Ireland and Larry Miller and Senator Fred Thompson and Rob Schneider and Jason Bateman and Sinbad. Oh god, I, I was hoping you wouldn't forget Sinbad. It is kind of an odd duck. I'm a big fan of it, but I can understand somebody from a boutique label who prides themselves on releasing elite scores from elite composers might sort of turn their noses up on this or just overlook it. But I'm a big fan of this movie and this score. I think the main theme to this score is just excellent. It's by turns in different tracks. It's fun. It's sweeping. It's epic. And it's a good thing that theme is so good because it's basically the thing that every single track is based on other than like two or three of them. It does appear in a wide variety of guises and proves somewhat flexible. The thing that is unique to me about this score is the use of the electric guitar. It is incredibly prevalent. It is all over this thing. And usually when you hear electric guitar integrated into an orchestral score or a mostly orchestral score, it is not integrated well. It's used as sort of a small accent piece. Yeah, usually what they do is they just play the orchestral score and then they'll just lay a guitar on top of it as just sort of an accent over top of it, and it's not really integrated at all. But in this, it's just used as just another instrument in the orchestra. It's really, really well done. Yeah, and I mean, Conti, to the extent that he's famous, is most famous for blending that sort of traditional score feeling and rock elements for Rocky, so that's something that he was quite adept at. He does a lot of interesting stuff with instrumentation, not just with the electric guitar being so prominent and so well integrated with the rest of the orchestra, but he also, in several tracks, strips away all of the instruments, like strips that theme down to just a drum set for like a sort of football players as soldiers marching into battle analogy in the music. He does that when they're doing tryouts. He does that when they're at practice, doing training. He does that when they're in the locker room getting ready for a game. He just strips all of the instruments out of the theme except for the percussion, except for the drums, and plays that almost like, you know, like they have a drummer playing while soldiers march into battle in a Civil War movie. It, it has that sort of feel. It, it's drawing that analogy, and it, it's, again, it's really well done. But again, it's based on that same main theme, even though it doesn't have any notes in it anymore.
another thing he does really well in this score is transitioning between evoking different feelings with the music because he has the part that's just the drums that's trying to make you think of these football players as soldiers getting ready for battle and then that transitions seamlessly into a big heroic rendition of the theme on the brass section and that transitions seamlessly into a similarly heroic rendition except now it's on the electric guitar plus the brass section he transitions between different modes really, really well. It appears in kind of a rock guitar setting many, many times. There's at least one piece with more of a blues guitar kind of feeling, but when it goes to the orchestra, it becomes almost a, a different thing. The finale of this score, I think, is just incredible. The horns are just screaming at times. It's selling this football game as this epic struggle, which happens in a lot of sports shows and sports music and, and such, but it really brings that feeling out. And then it goes back to the rock version of the theme to draw everything full circle. It, it's just an impeccably done finale in particular. pointed out is that as this is a football movie there are some cuts on this cd that could seamlessly be used as like highlight package music on espn oh yeah there are so many so that's another way where it just feels everywhere he uses the theme it just feels right he uses it for like one person out on their own and it feels right and then he uses it for the players getting ready or practicing whatever and it feels right and then he uses it in the middle of the game and it feels right there's the big heroic version when they think they're going to do well in a game there's the like celebratory version in that final track after they win the game 
And there's also a version that uses like a, a slide guitar to put some twang on it because the main character comes from a farm and so they put a little country music feel on it. Yeah, exactly. We can be a little bit country and a little bit rock and roll. also use that blues guitar to just really stretch it out a lot whenever they're underscoring a scene from the love story. They take that like rock guitar feel and they just extend the guitar riff really long and turn it into almost a sub theme that's used for the love story. And they also do really similar stuff for this, like the sad scenes after they lose the game or whatever. It's just, it's really, really, really well done. Basically using this one theme for everything in the movie, from the victory to the defeat, to the happiness, to the sadness, to the celebration, to the love story, to the breakup in the love story. And it's all built around the same theme, and you'd think it would start to sound repetitive, but it just doesn't, because it's so good. It's just so entertaining. Exactly. If you're going to have one theme all over a score, it better be a good one. Exactly. Well, if your first thought when we decided to do this show was Necessary Roughness, my first thought, the one I thought of instantly when we decided we were going to do a show about things we actually like, was The Fountain by Clint Mansell.
we talked about Clint Mansell a little bit on another episode when we talked about Requiem for a Dream on the Oscar show. He was, at one point in his life, the lead singer for Pop Will Eat Itself, but he has found a home over the years as the house composer for Darren Aronofsky. The Fountain is a somewhat confounding film, which I think may be Darren Aronofsky's specialty. It has three different storylines that by the end of the movie you think maybe aren't actually different, that take place in radically different time periods, all of which star Hugh Jackman. And Mansell's score for this movie, I have found hypnotic. I have found it endlessly compelling. It actually took me a couple of listens to really clue into it, because a lot of the melodic material that develops along the course of the score begins in ways that are drawn out and played in different ways than they are in featured forms later on. And so after a couple of listens, I really kind of clicked into it. When I first got into this score around 2008 or 9, I swear I played this thing on repeat for about six months. I could not get enough of it for a long time. The opening of the score is a really lonely, tragic reading of the main theme for violin. This score is primarily performed by the Kronos Quartet, a string quartet also featuring Mogwai on guitars and bass. And the playing by the quartet on this score is amazing. That opening cue, after I clicked into it, draws me in every time. And that theme appears several times over the course of the score. There are a couple other ideas that come in over the course of it that are played around with, that combine with each other in some subtle ways at times. And then it all comes together in a huge epic finale as the th three storylines of the film kind of culminate and maybe come together depending on exactly how you see the movie and whether or not you read the associated graphic novel. But the climax of the score, I truly, truly love. The music pauses at a couple of points for story reasons, but then it just explodes in these huge chords, still just on string quartet, guitar, percussion, but it achieves this huge, huge sound. Just, I love this score so much. Scott, what did you think? I find this score confounding. 
because there's nothing about this score that I like. Like, it doesn't have a brass section, and it doesn't have, like, a big heroic main theme, and much of the score is kind of quiet and contemplative and, like, understated for the most part. There's nothing about this score that's anything I enjoy. And yet I find it compelling. It's a really compelling listen. And I don't know what about it makes it that way. <laughs> like, even the parts where it does sort of feel like it's building up to something, it never really quite builds up to something that I would find satisfying. Like, I remember listening to this score, and there's like a bass line in the background, and there's an intermittent violin melody on top of it, and I'm just waiting for that violin to, like, gather itself together and build up to some kind of really satisfying payoff, and it never quite does. It swells sometimes and then just drops back down into the background bass line, and then it swells a little bit, then it drops back down. It never really builds up to something. It never really pays off in anything. And yet, I, I can't think of any other word to better describe it than compelling. There's just something compelling about listening to this score. It's really interesting. Well, that's part of what kept drawing me in when I was just starting my life phase of listening to this over and over. Yeah, you know, that's there are some scores that are interesting, like right immediately. There are some scores that just have a big, bold theme that grabs you and you're into it immediately. And there are other scores where you sort of have to discover it a little. There are other scores where it has to grow on you a little. And so the score, if it doesn't have like a big, giant, attention-grabbing theme like Star Wars or a Giacchino movie or Necessary Roughness, if a score doesn't have a big attention-grabbing theme like that, it's gotta interest you enough to get you to listen to it again to really start to pick up on the nuances. And like I said, I can't say exactly what it is about this score that does that, but it absolutely does that. The more I've listened to this, the more little touches I pick up on. Like when the finale cue kind of reaches a mini culmination and pauses for a moment. In one of those pauses, very, very low on the bass, you can hear this four-note motif that is woven throughout the score, just as kind of a bridge and kind of just a tiny little peak showing through there. In that finale cue also, there's a twinkling that comes over when the main theme is building intensity and, and cycling through when parts of it keep leading it up the scale and up the scale to kind of build momentum. There's that twinkling that comes in that is just magical when I really clued into it. There are so many amazing things about this score and about this album in just 45 minutes or so. For a score album, it's pretty short. Well, for a score album these days, they all used to be half an hour in the 90s, but, you know, we're living in the now. There are just so many things about it that I find endlessly compelling and endlessly listenable. What was your next choice? This is sort of an atypical score for this composer, but I found it really interesting. The next one I have is Conspiracy Theory by Carter Burwell.
Carter Burwell, we've talked about a couple of times recently. He's been nominated for a couple of Oscars in recent years. He has a style where he writes one particularly compelling theme or piece of music and then just sort of repeats it throughout a composition. He's been doing that going back to the 90s in stuff like The Spanish Prisoner and being John Malkovich. And he still did it to an extent in more recent stuff like Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri and Carol. Conspiracy Theory is very different for him. Conspiracy Theory has several distinct themes, but not just themes. It has like several distinct musical styles that it uses throughout the movie. Because the movie tries to straddle so many different genres, Burwell sort of scores each of those individual genres. There are some tracks that have like a big heroic theme, and there are other tracks that are scored as like a spy movie, and then there are other tracks that are scored as a psychological thriller, and then there are other tracks that are scored as like kind of a comedy. Like, look at this weird, quirky guy who is experiencing this psychological horror and is trying to do espionage and also has heroic moments. It's a weird movie to try to parse because it tries to do so many things at once, but I find the score really interesting because it tries to do so many things in various tracks. And it's another one that brings in the electric guitar at times. It does. That's, that's sort of becoming a theme for this episode. The main theme that I took away from this that I really remembered after the movie actually only shows up primarily in one track. Like, it's referenced briefly in one earlier track, but it's really primarily only in the final track on the CD. And so that theme isn't really the main theme of the movie or of the score, but there's so much other varied material. It really does play into a lot of different styles, and yet somehow it all hangs together. It's not like it sounds like four different scores that got mashed together. It all hangs together. It's all of a piece, but it's all of such differing styles depending on what scene of the movie it's trying to accentuate. Right. There are parts that are kind of New York funk, New York jazz with a sort of funk rhythm, with saxophones, combining with the orchestra at times, and then a lot of the fully orchestral pieces are more in that psychological thriller mode. A lot of things that are layered together that are a little incongruous, but somehow they come together in a way that's interesting and with melodies, again, that you can really hook onto. Especially that one that comes out in bright, kind of triumphant form right at the end of the score for Julia Roberts' character, as she is the only one in the movie, if I recall correctly, who actually gets to be happy and fulfilled and have a good life. So there's a kind of victory there that the score reflects.
Yeah, I'm normally not the biggest fan of, like, psychological thriller music, or even necessarily of, like, spy movie music, but all of this, not only is it just really interesting and well done, but also because the score is doing so many different things, it's not like there's 12 tracks in a row of just psychological thriller score. You know, it's only like every third or fourth track that touches on that. And it's really interesting because it tries to do so many different things. It's almost like it has a different main theme for each aspect of the film. Like there's a theme that's used in the parts that are sort of a spy movie. And there's a theme that's used in the parts that are psychological horror. And there is, like you said, the big heroic theme that's used primarily at the end of the movie. And there is another theme that's used as just like the sort of generic, look at this weird guy, this is a comedy about a weird guy, ha ha ha, you know, before we go to the next scene where it's psychological horror again. And so that could very easily just wind up being a confused mess. And the fact that it's not, that it all hangs together and it all works, I think really says a lot about the skill that went into composing it. Yeah, it's all pulled off with a great deal of skill and class. It's a very good listen. Well, speaking of psychological thrillers, I too find it a little hard to get into thriller scores sometimes because often there aren't those big pieces to kind of hook you, or at least to hook me. But one that I really, really appreciate, which is a smaller score for a smaller movie, is Columbus Circle by Brian Tyler. This is another score that's primarily performed by string quartet. In fact, there's a string quartet and the rest of the instrumentation in the score is piano and percussion performed by Brian Tyler, who is one of those composers who has his own collection of just weird percussion that he can bring into a studio whenever he wants to give an accent to something. Columbus Circle has a main theme and some associated ideas that move around each other and sort of twist in different ways. I'm reminded to some extent of some of the classic Bernard Herrmann scores for the Hitchcock thrillers, in the way that there's some slicing strings to accentuate some parts, but also there's an element of some of that stabbing slicing strings in the main theme pretty often. But there's also, in a couple of arrangements, a section where 
the theme floats up to the really high violins, and it's just being sketched in this high, high register over a bed of the rest of the strings and the rest of the instrumentation that I think is just incredible. It sounds like suddenly this theme is, is floating above everything, above the chaos that's going on in the rest of the instrumentation and some of the other music in the score, and then it gets pulled back in. That is something that I find really, really compelling just in the music, but I, I find myself imagining how it conveys again, as the score is supposed to, conveys the emotions of the characters. In a thriller, for instance, when they're getting pulled into these scenarios that just twist around them and drag them down, and, you know, whatever is happening to the particular characters in a particular story, I think it just reflects that in a way that is well thought out and well constructed. It's very, very different from what you would expect of a Brian Tyler score, knowing more of his large-scale franchise scores. The guy's done about 17 Fast and the Furious movies, I think. We first became fans of his from the Children of Dune miniseries. Those are more... Children of Dune in particular is, is a more fully symphonic, thematic sci-fi score. But this, I feel, is very, very different from that sound, but it still carries some of his signatures, and the way that that theme is reused and twisted around, especially in the very long finale piece, I think draws together all of the ideas in the score, puts a button on them, has a bit of brightness at one point, but we're pulled right back into the thriller aspects, it again has that main theme on the high floating violins. in particular draws everything together in a way that I just find wonderful. Anyway. <laughs> Do you really want me to talk? I feel kind of bad now. Well, you could change what you were going to say. I found this score really hard to get into. A couple of the earlier tracks I was sort of starting to get into. They, they had some good energy to them. I enjoyed them. But then, as it got further into the score, everything just felt very slow, and I don't want to call it plotting, but, like, very deliberate. Everything was very slow and deliberate, and nothing really had a lot of energy or anything that I could really hook into, to, like, as a way in. And so I just, I felt like most of this score just sort of passed me by. 
And like, even though I was listening to it and trying to analyze it and trying to evaluate it, I still feel like the whole thing passed me by without me really taking much notice of it. I mean, I'm generally, as I said, I'm generally not a huge fan of thriller scores to begin with, so maybe that's part of it, but this just wasn't for me. Well, a score that I think just wasn't for me is our next choice. Scott, what do we have? Several years ago, when we talked about the score to King Arthur Legend of the Sword, and I introduced that by saying, don't judge the score by how crap the movie is. So I'll say here, don't judge the score by how crap the movie is. But the more I listen to it, the more I love Transformers by Steve Jablonski. score I don't care <laughs> oh, well <laughs> depending on how you count them it's got like somewhere between three and seven distinct themes that run through it it's got other just like one-off tracks that are just epic and awesome I think a lot of people expect transformer score to just be filled with what we've called on previous shows generic actiony filler but there's so little of that in this score, just like parts of a couple of tracks. Everything else has these like big epic themes in like every track. It's a revelation if you're not expecting it. If you've never listened to this score because you think the Transformers movies are crap, I really urge you to give this a shot. I listened to the score to the second Transformers movie, and that wasn't really any good, and I haven't bothered to listen to any of the others yet, but the first Transformers movie... Almost every track is just really epic and awesome. Steve Jablonski, of course, comes from the Hans Zimmer School for Composers. Literally from the Hans Zimmer School for Composers. I found this score to be kind of a transitional form. Zimmer and the school of composers that he's cultivated over the last, what, 25 years now? has not only defined to a large extent the sound of your typical action film, but has redefined it a couple of different times. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're about to compare this to Dunkirk, I, I, I don't know that we could co-host a show together anymore. <laughs> well, no, not Dunkirk, but I think Transformers coming when it did in 2007 is kind of during a long transition 
between the 90s sound of Zimmer from films like Crimson Tide and The Peacemaker and The Rock and Armageddon, done by a couple of his students, through the 2000s, which was heavily influenced by Gladiator and, and had several more of those action scores by people who had worked for Zimmer or were at the time working for Zimmer. There was, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, where Zimmer himself took over the sequels. Those were tremendously influential. And then Zimmer himself redefined the action sound with Inception in 2010. So... 2007, where we're situated with Transformers, is kind of during a time of transition. A lot of the Zimmer school was starting to let go of the sort of power and themic action style in favor of one that's more directly based on ostinati and on huge chords kind of bridging over those. Again, Inception is the kind of or example of that from Zimmer and his school. And there are a lot of those ostinati in Transformers, but it still has somewhat of the melodic aspect of an earlier form of that school's sound that was being transitioned out of. So it's in that way an interesting artifact on an archaeological level. A few of the melodies are perfectly pleasant, they serve their function, they're entertaining for the length of time that I'm listening to them, but I found most of this score pretty transient. Like, it was perfectly entertaining while I was playing it, but the content of it evaporated from my mind almost immediately. I might almost agree with you to an extent and that i often have a hard time telling some of these themes apart they do sort of seem very similar in my mind and unless i go back and sort of listen to one after the other i do sometimes mistake one for another like i'll get a theme stuck in my head but i don't remember which theme it was <laughs> it could be any of like three of them because they're all sort of giant and epic and awesome, but they are giant and epic and awesome in similar ways. Which I don't necessarily have a problem with, because as I said, they're giant and epic and awesome. But if you're trying to do, like, thematic storytelling, like a John Williams Star Wars movie, it would be a problem if you can't remember which theme is being played, and where it originated from, and what it signifies. Yeah, that's one big criticism that I would have of this sort of style of action score. There are things that are big and epic. There's choir all over the place. There are those big melodies at times, but it feels like it's not telling a story over the course of a score. It's just this particular scene needs to be epic. So we're going to place something on it that's stereotypically epic. It's not growing out of anything. It's not developing from anything. A lot of it is just moment to moment. Here's an action scene. Put some big action music on it. Here's an epic shot. Put some choir and some big chords on it. It's kind of needle droppy stuff at times. I don't know if they're actually trying to do thematic storytelling because I'd have to go back and like watch the movie and I don't really have any plans to do that. 
Good lord, no. Are you kidding me? I mean, I think the first Transformers was the best of those movies, but it still wasn't great. But, I mean, it's not like these are just one-offs that they put over a particular scene and then never bring back. These are themes that are brought back and referenced later on. Like, track one, they introduce a big, epic, awesome theme. And then track two, they introduce a Decepticon theme that sounds sort of sinister and menacing. And then track three, they introduce another big, heroic, awesome theme. And then track six, they introduce another big, heroic, awesome theme. And they do bring those back. Whenever the Decepticons are doing stuff, they bring back that Decepticon theme. The two tracks on the CD that feature the Sam character both have the same pattern to them. They're built the same, they're structured the same, they have the same motifs in them. Well, they have the same temp track from American Beauty, but alright. When you get into the battle tracks toward the end of the CD, which you would expect to just be generic action filler, it's mostly not. They do bring back the other themes. They bring back the Decepticon theme, they bring back all three of the big heroic themes in various places. It's not just, here's a big epic piece of music for this particular scene. They are themes that are brought back and repeated later on. Like I said, I don't know necessarily that it's doing thematic storytelling a la Star Wars or Superman, but they are themes that are brought back and referenced repeatedly later on in the score. And like I said, they're all giant and awesome. Have I mentioned this score is awesome? (laughs) Once or twice, maybe. I also really appreciated how Jablonski plays some of the themes primarily on the strings. The strings sort of have a more naturalistic feel to them, sort of an almost ethereal feel sometimes, compared to the brass section that can sound more powerful but is also sort of industrial feeling. That's why, for example, in Lord of the Rings, the Rohan theme is almost always on the string section. Between using the strings like that, and also with the chorus that Jablonski uses in a lot of tracks, it it really feels like he's trying to provide a connection to nature and humanity in this score. Which, you know, the movie doesn't really have. The movie is primarily about explosions and secondarily about giant robots. So I, I did appreciate that technique from Jablonski there.
I mean, I guess it sort of is very stereotypical of a particular style of a particular era of film scoring, much like the Star Wars original trilogy scores are very stereotypical of that style in that era of scoring. But just like the Star Wars scores are incredible and awesome and great, despite being typical of the style and era they come from, I think this Transformer score is epic and great and an incredible listen, even if it is very emblematic of the milieu that it comes out of. It can still be excellent to listen to, even if it's not innovative or unique. It's unique in that it's really good. That's what makes it unique. <laughs> On that note, we are going to take a quick break and hear about all the things that are available on our FAIR podcast feed and website, and then we will come back to talk about the rest of our choices. We will see you then. consideration paid for by the following. Play Sweet Nations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have over two dozen podcasts available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaySweetNation.com. We now offer them to you on two great feeds. On the PlaySweetNation Wrestling feed, we dive into topics running the gamut from today's WWE to the glory days of yesteryear and the ins and outs of the territory days. In addition to our full-length shows, we also deliver to you special pod blasts on topics old and new. The Place to Be Nation Pop Feed is a veritable treasure trove of great content. Offer tremendous shows covering the land of movies, television, life, comics, and sports. Brought to you by the most knowledgeable and insightful folks in the podcast world. You can find all these current shows, plus archives of our previous podcasts from over the past eight years as well, by subscribing to our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows, plus others available at PlaySmation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using www.placebedition.com forward slash Amazon while doing your online shopping. And be sure to join us at our forum at Bigelow34.proboards.com for all sorts of wrestling, sports, and pop culture discussion each and every day where you can make your voice heard. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar, ProWrestlingOnly.com, and TheHistoryOfWrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaySmation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. We have plenty of great content for you on our two podcast feeds here at Place to Be Nation. The Place to Be Nation pop feed includes DC4U, an in-depth look at the world of DC Comics. Marvel Age, where our comics contingent meticulously goes through the history of Marvel Comics. 
Laugh-In Theater, a live-watch comedy movie podcast. The Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, which brings you thoughts on pop culture and the wider culture from myself and my family and friends. The Year in Pop, a deep dive into pop culture year by year. Diamond Conversations, which features in-depth interviews with guests from in and around the world of baseball. Sunday Groove, a podcast for music lovers far and wide, plus special topical podcasts as events warrant. The Place to Be Nation wrestling feed includes deep dives on professional wrestling from the 80s, 90s, and today, including Body Press Your Luck, a new wrestling game show hosted by JT Rosero and Jordan Duncan, plus monthly pay-per-view reaction shows and much, much more. Don't forget to check out placetobenation.com. We have a group of writers bringing you articles on topics in the worlds of wrestling, sports, and pop culture, as well as our mainstays, such as the Wednesday Walk Around the Web, my weekly link roundup covering things I've seen online that make me laugh, make me feel something, and sometimes make me think. And I hope they do the same for you. Coming to you every Wednesday, going 10 years strong. And if you're shopping from Amazon, be sure to click on the Amazon banner on the right side of the PlaceTomination homepage, or use PlaceTomination.com slash Amazon. And now, back to the show, where we are continuing our list of scores that we like. My next one is in a style that I have been trying to get into one of these shows, because, Scott... I have, for a while, wanted to see what you would think of one of the huge, epic historical scores that came along so often in the 50s and 60s. We're going to the Golden Age. There are a few that I thought of starting you on, but when you described the idea for this show to me, the one that I thought of instantly was Land of the Pharaohs by Dmitry Tiomkin. Tiomkin was a Russian immigrant who was fairly prominent in film music in the 50s and 60s. He apparently had a colorful personality. He would go on television. For Land of the Pharaohs, he did a lot of the press tour because a lot of the cast was relatively unknown, other than Joan Collins. It is a story about ancient Egypt, obviously, about a pharaoh who becomes obsessed with building the pyramid as a monument to himself and the building of the pyramid, the death of the pharaoh, the conniving of, I believe, Joan Collins' character to take over Egypt, and then the way that that gets twisted on her. 
it has kind of the epic scope of a movie about the building of the pyramids and, and the great pharaohs and such, but it also has melodramatic elements that have different scoring needs. By all description, the movie is a real turkey, but the score I find very, very entertaining. It has this very strong main theme that is stated during the main title and the first sequence of the film in several different ways. It's introduced in this huge brass fanfare, but then it's taken over by a solo vocalist over sort of sliding instrumentation in, in a sort of beguiling way. And then for the opening of the movie, it explodes into a huge march. The tempo of it is modified, some of the emphasis on different parts of it is modified, but it's that same theme that cycles through for nine or ten minutes of the long opening sequence. It's really explored pretty deeply, not just in that piece, but across the whole length of the score. This is a very long score, also. It's about two hours. Again, for films that are kind of struggling, they often get scored wall-to-wall. -wall. Some of these ancient epics would get scored wall-to-wall -wall because it's trying to achieve that heightened feeling. And so the score has to cover the more epic sequences around the, the pyramid, around the marches. All of these ancient epic scores have great marches. Miklos Roja, in particular, pretty much wrote them in his sleep. And the March version of the main theme here, I just think is great. Over the length of the score, perhaps your mileage may vary, because there are long dialogue scenes as the more melodramatic elements of the story develop and play out, and a lot of those are scored with little variations on that main theme. There's a lot of kind of sliding strings and traditional melodramatic scoring, but that main theme keeps coming back and keeps being played with to maintain interest through many of those sequences. There are very strong choral elements. There are several choral pieces for funeral songs when there are people, you know, who died during the pharaoh's conquests and whatever. There's a song for the people building the pyramid that integrates some untrained singers because they were trying to convey, you know, the hoi polloi of Egypt building this thing. And so there's some element of that kind of calling out. There's kind of a call and response with the chorus at times. But there are several of these epic choral pieces that really carry that large-scale dimension of the score. In contrast to the smaller-scale interior dialogue scenes and the sorts of variations that those have. And then at the end of the score, there is a conclusive, epic chorus and orchestra, just huge reading of that main theme again to really draw everything to a close.
this theme and this score across a great deal of its length, I just find immense, basically. It encompasses a lot, and it holds my attention certainly for a long time, and the big, grand versions of that theme I just love. Scott, why did you hate this? Well, that's maybe not... (laughs) I don't know, you just want to pick up? (laughs) This score, for me, is sort of the exact opposite of The Fountain. Like, everything about this score is something I like. It's got the vocal tracks. It's, like, very focused on huge brass renditions. I like the theme. I like the scope of it. I like the epic feel they're trying to achieve. And yet there's just something about this score that just doesn't click with me. It's just something about it feels slightly off to me. I think part of it is just because it was so long. I think maybe if it was edited down to like an hour, I might have enjoyed it more. But on the other hand, there's just... Like the first track or two, I did really enjoy. Where they they have that theme, and they play it on the brass primarily. And it's got that like really 50s and 60s sounding brass where it's like really distorted. You know, the way that the brass sounded in scores from the 50s and 60s that they don't really do anymore. And I really like that part. Later, it just sort of, it feels like it's constructed wrong. Like, you're ideally looking for, like, something to build up and then reach a crescendo and then have some sort of denouement on the end. And so you want, like, a really satisfying build up that grabs your interest and then you want a really nice payoff, not just like a moment, but you want that to last for a while to give you that really epic payoff. And then maybe a little bit on the end where it tails off or fades back down or whatever. And for this score, it just, a lot of it felt like they skipped the buildup and then spent like 20 minutes at the crescendo to the point where it just felt tiring. And then there were a lot of the tracks, like you said, once you got later in the score, when they got away from the big epic parts, those tracks sort of felt more unfocused. Well, I think there are still a few things that those sequences are focused around. There are a couple of minor themes for different characters that cycle through at various times. I mean, obviously there are sections that aren't my favorite, but I feel that the parts that really hook me, hook me so hard that I developed a great affection for this score. I would say there are tracks in this that I really like. 
And there are pieces of this, not necessarily entire tracks, because this thing has like 15, 20-minute tracks in some sections. But there are pieces in this that I really do genuinely like a lot. But the score as a whole, as an entirety, as, as a full composition, it just doesn't click for me the way that I want it to, and the way that I feel like it should, given all of the ingredients. Like, all of the sort of ancillary aspects that are usually things that I really love in scores, it just, it just never really adds up for me in this score. Like I said, there's a couple of tracks that are good, there's some pieces that are really good, but as a full composition, it just turns me off in a way. So if that's a score that turned you off, why don't you talk about a score that turned you on? Well... This is another one that you're just going to dismiss because it is sort of a stereotypical offering from a particular era of the Zimmerlings. And I like it for a lot of the same reasons that I like the Transformers score, so you know, maybe I just have a type. The next score I have on my list is The Time Machine by Klaus Bedelt. Delt is another one of the Zimmerlings, and he sort of fits into that style. There's several big epic themes that are played really prominently on big epic brass renditions, and also a lot of big epic choral renditions. So, I mean, I guess you can dismiss it similarly, because it's just sort of of a piece, and it just sounds like everything else coming out of that school, but... Again, it differentiates itself because it's really good. It's really entertaining. It just sounds awesome. I've been a fan of this score really ever since we first saw the movie back in 2002. It stuck with me immediately, and it's stuck with me since then. There's several themes in here. There's a main theme for the protagonist. There's also what we were calling sort of a B theme of the main theme that you suggested to your notes may actually be a separate theme where one theme is for the protagonist and a different theme for the time travel rather than an A theme and B theme of the main theme, which I think is an interesting idea and it's again something I'd have to rewatch the movie to try to figure out. But the one that really stuck with me almost more than the main theme is the theme that they use for the Eloy later in the movie, because that's the one where they use the big epic choral rendition to introduce it, and, and like I said, it's just big and epic and awesome.
every time I hear it, it sticks in my head for days. That Eloy theme reminds me for all the world of some ad for like exotic vacation packages. It's not a bad theme. I don't not enjoy it. It just, it feels very stereotypical. And that's not always a bad thing, but it does. I'm not dismissive of this score at all. I don't think that this score is as much in the wheelhouse of all the Zimmerlings in this era as you make it out to be. Really? Because it is pretty similar to the Transformers score in a lot of ways. I don't find it that similar at all. I think there are many pieces that have a much bigger influence from Jerry Goldsmith, including the big time travel sequence. There isn't a very strong synthetic element except for a couple of pieces late in the movie with the Morlocks. There isn't a sort of ostinato-dependent style that would filter in over the course of the 2000s, but I don't think the main theme for the movie, as big as several of its arrangements are, really falls into the sort of power ballad milieu that the Zimmer folks were in around this time either. The score itself is, to a large extent, traditionally orchestral. The big sequences, the main title, that time travel sequence, are orchestrally based. There's other percussion that comes in, and some other instrumentation that comes in later on during the Eloy sequence, and during the Morlock sequence there's other sort of darker stuff and, and different percussion and such, but the main body of the score I find very solidly orchestrally based. It's, it's a much more traditional score than I think a lot of the Zimmerlings were doing for action films around this time. So much of this score is based around the A and B themes, as we were calling them. There's also a love theme that is fairly touching in some of its arrangements. There's that Eloy theme, so it, it has different shades that it can sort of switch between. So nothing really becomes monotonous, and every time that that main theme or the B-side have very strong presentations, I feel is just very... I keep using the word compelling on these score shows, but it is. The two tracks that combined make up the main time travel sequence have really, really incredible variations on a lot of the base material of the score. It really kind of weaves everything together and has a great, I don't even want to say action-oriented, because that's not the action section of the film, but a great kind of high energy, high emotion sort of feel that is just very, very interesting, very, very entertaining, very, very compelling. In a way that I specifically didn't find Transformers. Also, in the aspect of sort of thematic development, the themes are used many times in many ways, rather than maybe brought back once or twice, often with the same instrumentation. There's variation here, there's development here. The theme for Guy Pierce, the protagonist, by the end of the film, is appearing on the Shakuhachi flute which is another very stereotypical element for scores of this era, but that's a James Horner influence, not a Hans Zimmer influence. So that's okay. <laughs> but the main theme, which has been on orchestra so many times in so many different ways, by the end of the film, as Guy Pierce is staying with his new love interest, it's appearing on the Shakuhachi flute, which has been associated with the Eloy in the whole latter portion of the film. So there's 
there's an element of storytelling there. There's an element of activity on the part of the score that I think is what really separates the truly good scores in my mind. Well, I think you're being unnecessarily dismissive of the theme development in Transformers, but you're right, it's not really on the same level as the variations that Bedell uses in this movie. On the other hand, other than like the main theme A and B and the love theme and the Eloy theme and like I don't even know if there's a theme in the Morlock material or if it just sort of is all in the same style and that is what designates it as the Morlock material. There are fewer themes used in this than there are in Transformers. But, you know, I'm me. So my favorite parts of this are when the themes are big and huge and epic. The use of the main theme during the time travel sequence, uh, the Eloy theme, the two times where it's really prominently featured, just awesome, awesome to listen to. Let's move on to another score that I find quite entertaining and that most of all I find fun. And that is The Return of Dracula by Gerald Freed. This movie have a theme? I couldn't really tell. <laughs> there are several great Dracula scores in the history of film scores. Of course, we were trying not to do the big acknowledged masters, so I wasn't going to do the John Williams Dracula. I did briefly think of Bram Stoker's Dracula by Wojciech Kilar. I hope I pronounced that correctly. But even though I have a fondness for that score, I knew that if I made you listen to all three discs of it, you may do me physical harm. In contrast, The Return of Dracula by Gerald Freed is a very short score. It's a little over 30 minutes, but it hits some high points. It gets in and gets out and makes its arguments. The main theme of this score is the Dies Irae, which we've talked about in a few instances where either the Dies Irae was suggested or people perceived the Dies Irae, but we thought that was reading a little too much into things, or it was particularly subtle, there isn't anything subtle about this score. It's just big and fun. The Dies Irae at times is used like a demented march. The character of Dracula has his own theme that's associated with him that has kind of that aspect of the Superman theme where you can, like, sing the name of the character to part of the theme, which, once you hear it, it'll stick with you. 
but the DSERA keeps coming back, sometimes in relatively subdued ways, but often it is big and bold. It has driving strings under it at times. The tempo of it is played with several times until, again, at the end, it comes back in a huge, huge way just to draw everything to a conclusion. And all in a little over 30 minutes. It's something that I find really entertaining and that it's something else that I thought would be good to have on this show in particular because it's so fun and because it's so active. So what did you make of it? Well, I have to say I did appreciate that it didn't try in any way to be subtle. I mean, this score used the DS era more than the actual DS era does. <laughs> One particular track actually has a repeating background element that's based on the DS era, and then overlaid on top of that is a main focused melody that is also the DS era. <laughs> I mean, they're not pussyfooted around at all with this, and, and that's pretty interesting to hear. I have to admit it did sort of get repetitive at times, because like you said, there was that sort of fanfare-ish thing that was used, I guess you said it was the character theme, but it's really, not only is the entire thing based around the DS era the way that the entire Necessary Roughness score is based around one theme, but the DS Ray is like two bars. You know, the Necessary Roughness theme like goes on and on and has like a B section and has a bridge in it, and the DS Ray is like two bars long, and it, they just keep going through it again and again and again and again and again. And, you know, they do it in different ways, and they have different tempos, and they do shade it slightly differently, but it does sort of get repetitive for me after a while. Also, because there isn't a huge variety of instrumentation. It's not like some scores we've talked about before where, you know, well, let's pass the theme from, you know, the trumpets to the violins to the cello to the flutes to the oboe to the tuba. There's not a huge variety of instrumentation on here. So that, that's another way where it doesn't really vary very much. Well, it's the fugue for Dracula that gets passed around the instruments more. You know, there are times when it starts on the tuba and passes to the strings and passes to the horns. The DS Ray does do that less. One of the things that makes the DS Ray in this score so much stronger than most of the appearances that it has in film music is that a lot of the other appearances just use the first phrase of it, the first four notes, or at most the first eight, the first two phrases. But this uses a fuller section of it. And so that really carries more of it and makes it more of a theme rather than just a repeating element or just an accent piece. Do you want to talk about a score that never wore out its welcome with you? Well, I mean, we've already talked about several. 
No, okay. But if you want to move on to the last score on my list for today, that is Quigley Down Under by Basil Polidorus. Polydorus was one of the bigger composers in the 90s, like in the upper echelon of composers when I first really started getting into movie scores beyond just Star Wars and Superman. But I don't really hear him mentioned that much these days. He did several really big scores. He did The Hunt for Red October. He did a lot of really good stuff in the 90s, and Quigley is one of his best, in my opinion. I wouldn't recommend going back and watching the movie. I can't imagine it holds up well at all. Oh, oh, I, yeah, probably doesn't. This is a movie where Tom Selleck plays an old West rifleman who goes to Australia because he is hired by white colonialist Alan Rickman to exterminate the infestation of native Australians that live on his land. It's one of those movies where, like, their heart was in the right place, but I can't imagine it stands up very well these days. Yeah, I just realized, thinking about the movie again to talk about this score, that the only way that the filmmakers could imagine a Western movie where the Western hero is defending Native people against imperialists is to move it to Australia and make all the imperialists British. Yeah... There's a certain amount of white saviorism in the story, and there's a certain amount of, you know, well, now we solved settler violence against Native Australians. So don't go back and watch the movie unless you know what you're getting into. But the score is incredible. This is another one that's majorly focused on just a few themes. Like, really, for all intents and purposes, it's built on one main theme. And there's a second theme that's also used, but it feels so of a piece with the main theme that I didn't even realize it was a separate theme until you pointed it out to me. (laughs) And, I mean, there's a motif and a style associated with the villain, and there's a theme for the love interest, but... Really, for the most part, it's just the main theme and the theme that sounds as if it's also the main theme. And they're just incredible. The main theme in its various guises appears as sort of a jaunty, folksy little ditty for the comedy aspects of the film, basically. It's playful. It has sort of a ragtime rhythm underneath it. 
But in other places, the theme is transformed into a completely traditional Western theme. And I mean traditional Western theme in the sense of the 50s and 60s Westerns before Ennio Morricone changed the game, where it sort of blossoms at one point into this huge, expansive treatment of the theme, the way that a lot of the old great Western scores did. The other theme that you mentioned comes in as the movie proceeds, and it's more of an action-oriented theme. It appears in, in, in a gentler rendition a couple of times, but its real featured moments are in the action scenes toward the end of the film. And in those sequences, the guitar playing underneath is astonishing. Like, with the tempo that they keep up with in terms of the action material that the orchestra is playing, I don't know how their fingers didn't melt. <laughs> it's really very damned impressive. Like, in addition to just sounding awesome and being entertaining as hell, in addition to the, like, score being written well, just the, the skill of these performers is incredible. Such a virtuoso performance on those instruments. Usually you have to, like, watch someone playing a guitar to, like, really see how incredibly precise and talented they are, but you could just hear it. Is so fast and so precise like you say yeah like they're playing notes so quickly and it's not like on an electric guitar where you could sort of slide from one chord to another these are just individual notes individual plucks of the string and they're just so fast yeah it's absolutely astonishing at times skill is a word that I kept coming back to over and over again, not just in that playing, but in Polydorus's sheer skill as a tunesmith, just as a film composer. This isn't going to be on anyone's list of, like, innovative and influential and, like, big-eye important film scores, but it is incredible to listen to just the sheer skill that Polydorus puts into everything about this score. From the construction of the themes to the different moods that they convey at different times, the parts that he wrote for those virtuoso players we're talking about, there are just so many different aspects of this score that are pitch perfect. Even the more minor themes he uses, like there's a piece that he uses to sort of represent the native Australians. And there's a piece to represent the British Army, which shows up a couple of times, that it just fits perfectly. 
like once you hear it, you just can't imagine any other piece of music serving that role. The love interest starring opposite Tom Selleck in this movie was it Laura San Giacomo, I think? Yeah. Her backstory in this film is the tragic loss of her baby, and she has this theme that sounds like a tragic lullaby. It's this kind of lilting melody at times that is so perfect for that character and that backstory. Again, I'm just so impressed with Polydorus's sheer skill and artistry. The place that theme really stands out to me, though, and, you know, if you know me, you know me. The place that her theme really stands out to me is the scene where there's like a fight scene where she has to defend herself and another baby that she finds from a group of attacking dingoes. Because this is a movie set in Australia in the 90s, so the dingoes try to eat her baby. Yeah, it was either that or kangaroos, right? Where they take her, like, tragic lullaby theme, and it becomes her heroic triumphant theme as she defends this baby in the way that she couldn't defend her own baby. Everything in this movie just works so well. And, like, not only is it well-crafted to serve a purpose and work very well, but it's also just great to listen to. It's also incredibly entertaining. Yeah, it's a fantastic score. It's a fantastic album. Like a lot of Polydorus scores, frankly. I mean, you say he's not that commonly known maybe in maybe in the mainstream, but among, like, specific film score fans, he is still adored. Really? Because I never really see him mentioned alongside, like, Williams and Goldsmith and Horner and, fuck me, Zimmer. <laughs> well, whenever people talk about really big names and scores, I, I never see him mentioned. Among the hardcore fandom, he is very, very well thought of. There are many of his scores that are widely beloved among the hardcore fandom. There's Conan, there, there are many others. Perhaps he doesn't get talked about in the same way as a Williams or a Goldsmith or a Silvestri or Horner or any of these people, 
partially because he did become disenchanted with Hollywood in the 90s and kind of fell away from doing the big mainstream pictures. So there isn't perhaps as wide a body of work as perhaps there might have been. But still, there are so many highlights that he's still one of the masters in my mind. Let's close out this show by talking about a score that isn't by a widely acknowledged master of the film scoring form, but is by a widely acknowledged master of the techno music form. I want to talk about Tron Legacy by Daft Punk. a bit about the development of the typical action style over the course of the late 90s through the 2000s into the early 2010s. Tron Legacy by Daft Punk, in association with Joseph Trapanese, who was hired to be a collaborator with Daft Punk as a film composer who knows more how to deal with the orchestra than Daft Punk particularly would. Tron Legacy is, in some ways, the quintessential 2010s action sound, in a milieu that was defined also in 2010 by Inception, and oft imitated. It shares some aspects. It shares that heavy reliance on ostinato. It shares some of those huge totemic chords that are kind of overbearing over some of the other music. But it was written and and developed and recorded at the same time. It's not imitating it. It's just something that was in the air, almost. And does it in a way that I find quite preferable and quite, again, compelling. I don't have a huge thesaurus on this. (laughs) Because there is a fantastic main theme that is introduced in the overture for the film and is brought back time and time again over the course of it in different ways, in ways that start small and get huge and epic at times, at ways that are sensitive and ways that are more directly action-oriented. One main feature of this score, because it's by Daft Punk, is the integration of the orchestra with the synthetic elements that are more the Daft Punk milieu. And that marriage is done extremely, extremely well. There are times when a popular music act is hired to do a score and it doesn't go very well. 
But the times when it really succeeds can be just joyful. There's this, there's Toto's score for the 1984 Dune, and I think what sets things like that apart is the seriousness of the integration of the rock elements, in this case the synth elements, some of the techno elements, with orchestral scoring in ways that kind of emphasize one or the other and can move between those modes, but also marry them together in ways that complement and enhance each other. Because of course there are pieces in here that are very, very heavily synthetic, and there are pieces that are heavily orchestral, but it all feels of a piece. And I feel that it's a score that is kind of fleshed out over its length and really coheres over its length. Of course, putting it together and arranging it is a bit of work because the commercial releases for this score are a damn mess. There were exclusive tracks for different streaming and digital download services. There were just different tracks available all over the place. So actually putting the whole thing together takes a bit of work. But I feel it really goes smoothly and it really comes together in a way that I find very skillful and very interesting. You're right that the orchestral elements and the more synth elements are integrated really well. It's not like a lot of scores where they just, like we were referenced earlier with the use of electric guitar, where they just like take an orchestral piece and just lay a synth on top of it as an accent or something. The whole thing is of a piece, and everything works together really, really well. Unfortunately, admiring the technique can really only keep my attention for a couple of tracks. Eventually, I, I need all of those instruments to actually like play something really interesting. I found this score in a lot of ways similar to Transformers, in that it's built to a large extent on ostinatos and repeating patterns. The difference I found is that the Transformers tracks usually built up to something really interesting or really awesome, whereas in this Tron Legacy score, it just never felt like it built up to anything satisfying until like the last couple of tracks. Throughout most of the runtime of the score, it was just building and then going nowhere, and then the next track would start building again. Ironically, there's a few tracks that just never feel like they're ever going to build to anything, and those were actually the tracks I was enjoying more because at least they didn't get my hopes up. I was able to just sort of enjoy the ostinato for what it was without, like, waiting for a payoff that didn't come until, like, the last handful of tracks.
So this is another one where there were aspects of it that I really enjoyed. There were pieces of it that I really enjoyed. There's a couple of tracks near the end of the score that are just really interesting and entertaining and satisfying, but for most of the score, I just didn't find that payoff that I was looking for. I found that there were enough smaller payoffs along the way, and then that the end and the epilogue really, really brought it home in a way that rewarded the whole listening experience. That's just a different impression of it that I got. Yeah, I guess you're enjoying the journey more, whereas I'm just tapping my foot waiting for the destination to arrive. Ah, quite possibly. (laughs) But I mean, we've done enough of these score shows by now, we all know what I'm looking for. You know, I thought I did, and I thought (laughs) I picked some scores that you might actually like. You know, there are strong themes, there are driving pieces. I thought I had it. Well, next time we do this, we'll change the rules so you can just pick Superman or Star Trek Into Darkness. (laughs) You're so disappointed whenever I display just how pedestrian my tastes are. I'm constantly worrying about my tastes being too pedestrian. You know, we wanted to do something that wasn't, you know, the big masters and the big franchise films, and I picked Tron. I picked a college football comedy. (laughs) The college football comedy was, like, the reason that I wanted to do this. Like, (laughs) what show can we do where I can talk about Necessary Roughness? Because I just want to talk about how good Necessary Roughness is. Yeah, what are we going to do, a retrospective on the scores of Scott Bakula films? Hey, have you ever heard Major League Back to the Minors? (laughs) Alright, I think that that will draw us to a close here. Scott... Where can people find you to tell you about the scores that they actually like? Well, you can find me on MySpace at Spectacular Scott, because I have my own space. A space of your very own. I'm proud of you. And I am also on the Tweety machine at Spectacular Sco, because my username is just too much for Twitter to handle. If anyone would like to find me, on the lines. I am at Glennie Bunn on several different services. If you would like to reach me with comments, questions, suggestions for the show. In the meantime, find me on placedomination.com every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time in the United States with the Wednesday Walk Around the Web, a weekly link roundup of articles and digital items that I find interesting or informative or hilarious, and I hope you do too. 
I'm not sure when we will have our next episode of this fair show, but I dearly hope that we will see you next time. Keep listening to Quigley and the Fountain for a while. I'm gonna, I'm gonna listen to Transformers again. <laughs> All right. Da, 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 da. Wow, you still remember something from Transformers? Yeah, don't ask me which theme it is. <laughs> right? <laughs> Put that on as the tag. Jesus. Da, 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 da. You know what theme I still remember? The fucking DS Array. Alright, we're done with the show. I'm hanging up. I can't. <laughs> oh, where's the stop button?